and everybody everybody just probably thinks oh andrew's um liaison is getting so much better <laughs> no one's ever said that Jen. no one's ever said that Enchanté. <laughs> Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. When you move to the French countryside like I have and from the city and like my guest today has as well, you learn a lot more about the produce that you are eating. Being so close to and having access to farmers and an insight into how they grow something or how something is raised on farms that produce good quality ingredients. One of the things I was surprised to learn when I moved to France from being a city boy in Australia was that meat can be seasonal. Sure, I'd heard of spring lamb before, but in supermarkets in Oz, lamb was available all year round. Here in France, sometimes you go to the market and there's none because it's not in season. So today on Fabulously Delicious, we are talking about an ingredient that is unique to certain areas in France, the Agneau de Priscelle. Agneau is a tongue twister of a word to try and say when you move to France, especially when you're an Aussie like me. So hopefully our guest today will be able to, well, at least educate us on the product and maybe get me to say it properly. Our guest today is a Francophile, chateau owner, Aussie born and bred, and an inspiration to many of us who've taken the jump to move to the other side of the world. Jane Webster, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Jane, before we talk all things Agnew de Priscel, I wanted our audience to get to know who Jane Webster is, if they don't already. So I saw an article about yourself that said an Australian woman living in a 72-room French chateau. So what's the chateau called? It's called Chateau de Bosque. Okay, and so how long have you been there? Uh, we have been here for, this is the 18th year we're coming into. Wow. So whereabouts is it? It's um, just west of Paris in Normandy, um, about 20 kilometres from Rouen, which is the capital of Normandy. So tell me, uh, somebody said that chateaus are the boats of the land. And so by meaning that, that they're a money pit. Is this true? <laughs> well, I guess it depends on the state of the chateau, the age of the chateau. Um, I mean, look, Bosque is uh, 1842, which, you know, uh, is like is like a Victorian house back in Australia. Um, and, and we were pretty lucky when we bought Bosque because it had been owned by um, an arrondissement of Paris and was used as a commune de vacances for... Um, French children and so all the infrastructure was really good in this chateau so all the wiring had been redone it has all the you know safety switches for electricity the roof had been redone the heating system was brand new there was a great big um, Rosier's commercial kitchen in the basement that had only been used one year before they closed down the Commune de Vacances. So um, are they money pits? Yes, they can be, absolutely. But 
Bosque's been pretty good to us. We live in this big country house as well. Do you find that you have to message each other in the house? <laughs> oh, we message we message each other all the time. <laughs> and um, and in fact, when we first moved here, um, we you know that we had four four small children, uh, uh, 11, 10, 9 and 3. And um, and they used to go off exploring. We're on 50 acres here, so they'd go off exploring all over the place. And we used the bell on the side of the chateau to get their attention, you know, when it was lunchtime or dinner time or time to come in and get ready for bed or whatever, you know, whatever time it was. It was the bell on the side of the chateau. Fabulous. Actually, we have a bell in our house as well, right at the entrance. And I use it to uh, let Peter know when lunch and dinner is ready, even if he's in the room next door. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cute. I like that. So the chateau has 72 rooms. You've been there nearly nearly 20 years then. Is the chateau filled or it will be never ending to try to fill so many rooms? I think it could be never ending to keep putting more stuff in. Um, and I still go brick hunting most weeks. Um, but am I buying big pieces? No. Uh, I, I, I actually said to Pete the other day, um, we need to go and buy another amoir, um for our bedroom. Our bedroom has a big walk-in robe that can be all locked up and, and whatnot. But I said, we really need an amoir in the actual room. Just in case there's ever a time where there's an overflow and he and I might move into another room and let, you know, guests be in in our room, um, there needs to be another amoir. But I, I guess the short answer is no, I think that we are going to leave a nightmare for our children when we die. <laughs> we'll be leaving it for the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well. They could have a lovely yard sale. Exactly, yes. You were born and you grew up in Melbourne. How did that sort of give leave you with, you know, going to France and having this big grand chateau? Well, we, um, we came to Paris on our honeymoon and we were on a TGV from uh, Paris down to Dijon after we'd been in Paris for about um, two weeks. And I had my nose pressed against the window of the TGV and I could see uh, two groups of symmetrical trees coming up. At the time I didn't know they were linden trees, but I now know that it was a, an alley of linden trees. And with my nose pressed against the window, I elbowed Pete and I said, something good's coming up. And his nose then was pressed against the window and we thought we saw the first chateau for the first time. And neither of us had ever been overseas before. We both went from school to university to work and we got married and went overseas for the first time, both of us, on our honeymoon. So, um, and I was just entranced from the first moment I saw one. And then, you know, every time we were on the trains, I was looking, you know, for another another chateau. And, you know, we saw quite a few on that trip. And when we got back to Melbourne, um, 
Well, Pete and I had a house that was in Stewart Street, Armadale, which ran off High Street. And um, the day we got home from our honeymoon, he went up to what was uh, then, there was a beautiful bookshop in High Street, Armadale called The Arts Bookshop. And he went there and he bought a book that he knew was in there called The French Chateau and bought it home for me as a a gift. And I had it on my bedside table for about 15 years. And, um, you know, we can probably all remember when the internet entered our lives. I remember Pete saying to me one night, do you know that you can unplug the phone and plug in the computer? And I said, then what? (laughs) <laughs> and he said, well, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a yellow pages, <laughs> but you can look at things all over the world. Now, of course, there was no Google at that point, but you could get information. And in the meantime, my sister had married a Belge and lived in Paris. And so we felt there was this familial duty to visit on an annual basis. Um, so that she had two children at the time and we had three. Um, And so really I started using the internet to look up uh, French immobiliers uh, and see what was for sale and they would send me files by snail mail because there was no email yet. Um, But it was just a way of finding out, well, where are the real estate agents? Where are the, you know, Uh, department stores, where are, whatever you wanted to look for, you could find, but it was just all information. It wasn't websites and that sort of thing. So um, the start of the internet, that just opened the whole world up. And, and of course, I'd been completely obsessed by this book, The French Chateau, and knew every one of the families intimately. Um, because it had been on my bedside table for 15 years. And um, so Pete said, well, why don't you make some rendezvous and we'll have a look at some. And we did. We really did it as part of a holiday. Um, we, We were the ultimate time wasters. This is a really brave thing to do because this is sort of this is a, this is before escape to the chateau. It's like you said, there's no um, there's no internet here. There's no this is all coming about before there was these. I mean, these programs are great, but even for an example, the escape to chateau people, they had a, a reference sort of to go on. There was previous shows, previous uh, things out there, blogs, and all of this sort of stuff for them to learn off before doing this. They even had that. You didn't have any of that. You've just you've gone from reading books to buying a chateau. No, no. I uh, my inspiration was these French families who had inherited these great piles, and there was this beautiful coffee table book about it. Um, I'll tell you one person who was uh, an inspiration, and that was Anne Willan, and she. Um, she had uh, a cooking school called La Varine in, Bergen- in, in Burgundy um, and it had even closed down by the time we came along uh, and she had gone back to the States and she was still running La Varine cooking classes 
I think in Florida or uh, maybe it was Boston. Anyway, um, Anne Willan was definitely an inspiration to me. Um, but no, there was no, there were, there were no other Australians doing it. Uh, Vicky Archer had bought their place in St. Remy, I think the same year we bought Bosquay. So her book came out about six months, her first book, um, which was called My French Life, came out about six months before my first book, which was called At My French Table, and we were both with Penguin Random House. Um, so that's probably, you know, Vicky and I were probably contemporaries in that respect. I want to talk about your books in a minute, but just before we do that, I wanted to say, so do you think what part of being, you know, either growing up in Melbourne or living your life in Australia before moving, what were you doing that gave you this sort of brave, in a way, <laughs> idea of moving to France and buying? Like what led you up to that? Did your parents move around lots or did you, no. you know, what no, no, gave no. you this sort of this no. ability I to do this? I, um, Andrew, I ask myself that frequently. And it's funny, I don't know that I could have made the same decision today as what I did 20 years ago. But I was, you know, I was 37 years old. I was much younger. Um, what did you both do for a living? My husband was a dentist and um, I had been a school teacher in another life uh, and then I owned a, a childcare centre in kindergarten in Melbourne um, and then I had, a little, I had a little gourmet food shop as well in um, Armadale um, in between teaching and um, the childcare centre. I always say that it was my stepping stone out of teaching into something else. Um, and, you know, I made cakes and sandwiches and um, condiments and jams and uh, had this really cute little shop in a, in a street called Moray Street in Armadale, right opposite the Armadale station. And um, uh, so, yeah, I've done a few things. Well, you're known for writing, amongst other things, and you've written many books about French country life and food. How did you get into writing? I, I have sat on my bed since I was a tiny little girl and dreamt about writing. Um, when I was very little, um, I would write poems. In fact, um, I just, I was, I have a girlfriend here at the moment from the States and and we were talking the other night and she said, do you have any of your poems? I said, I've got the first one I ever wrote and it's in my head. And, um, and I recited it to her. Um, and don't ask me why, you know, 49 years later, I can still recite the poem that I wrote when I was eight years old, but it was pretty important to me. And um, so, Yes, writing writing has always been something that I've loved doing, you know, but 
Um, and I guess when we bought the chateau, uh, well, a girlfriend who was in publishing said to me, okay, now you've got the hook, you can write. And um, so, you know. For any listeners that are out there that would like to write a book themselves, what tips would you have for them? Mm. In terms of the actual writing process? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when I wrote At My French Table, I just um, I just committed myself to a, a thousand words a day and I didn't care what I wrote. Um, I wasn't trying to, you know, win any awards. I just wrote. I wrote like like it was a diary or a journal. Um, and At My French Table very much reads that way anyway. Um, so I just committed to writing a thousand words a day. I had a year to write it, um, and I wrote it. You know, I wrote about the seasons and the change of seasons and the markets and you know family life and feelings, how we were all feeling about it. Um, but yeah, just that commitment to um, putting pen to paper every day. And I did put pen to paper. I didn't use a computer with the first book. Um, And how do you come up with the subjects to write for your books? Well, they're all pretty similar. They're all about France. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Yes. But, you know, there's there's a knack to that because – Yes, you they're all about France, but you know, there's a there's a definitely and they have similar themes, but they are all, you know, it's not just about the chateau, about the no. chateau two, about the no. chateau three. You've done a really no. great job with these books of being uh, across a wide variety of subjects that are but are that are very similar. Yes. And and I and I guess um being And that's a hard thing to do. Well I guess being cookbooks as well, I had that um, added um, genre, if you like, where I could tell the story around the food, um, which I love to do, you know. Um, And, you know, you know what it's like in France. I mean, every recipe virtually has a story of its own anyway and has an origin and has a famous cook that, you know, may have um, uh, made it at some point. And um, so it it gives you a lovely springboard to be able to storytell around, I guess. Something that I do love about you, Jane, is how you've embraced social media, especially uh, videos and filming yourself uh, out and about doing things, everything from going to Paris, but also doing gardening and things like that in the Chateau. You're very good at that. How did you get into this? Uh, One word, COVID. COVID. If you look, um, if you look back um before March 2020, you would never see a photo of me. You would never see a video of me. Um, if you had told me that I was going to make videos of me polishing staircases and, um, you know, parquetry and doing cooking classes and being online with people, um, I would have laughed and laughed and laughed 
because um, I would have said no way known. Um, in fact, there's a girl in the States and she contacted me uh, at, right at the beginning of COVID. Uh, it might have been April or May and she said, I'd really love to do a live interview with you. And I just said, oh, look, I'm no, I'm terribly sorry. No way. And she said, I promise, I promise I'll hold your hand. I promise I'll lead you. I said, Charlotte, I'm really sorry, but there's no way known I can do that. Anyway, I got off the phone and Pete said, who was that? And I said, oh, it's a girl that's, you know, she's got a very big following um, she's English, but she lives in America and she also has a place in France. And um, he said, I think you should do it. And I said, Pete, you can't even take a video of me without me making ridiculous faces. How on earth am I going to be able to do that? I'll be tongue-tied. I won't be able to do it. And he said, just put some boundaries around it and tell her that you'll do it for 15 minutes. The next day she rang back and she said, if you had to think about it, would you do it? And I said, look, I'll do it at 15 minutes and you really are going to have to hold my hand. Well, that first live went for two hours. <laughs> there you go. And it was fine. And um, I just, I just didn't know what to do, Andrew, when um, when I couldn't have any guests, you know. I couldn't do my French table weeks. I was supposed to start Chateau Life Residency on the 1st of April 2020. I'd been advertising it for two years. I was completely booked up um, and I lost every single guest, as we all did. You know, I'm not, I'm not moaning about it. I'm just saying... I didn't know what to do. I will say I, it's really inspirational and I hope there's a there are people out there listening to these. Well, I know there's people listening to this, but especially I want people, there is often I contact people to come on the podcast and they're like yourself back then and have said no because it's just, you know, oh, no, I couldn't do it. And even though I say, well, you know, it's not live and I will edit it out and, you know, that that it's it's about a subject that you love and you're passionate about and pe you have a story that I pe think people will really want to know. Yes. And, you know, they need to just, if they can listen to this and see, that you can just take the, the leap, take the jump like mm. you did and, uh, mm. and do it. And, you know, I think it's, there's lots of stories to be told out there. And oh, absolutely. That's what I think is fabulous and, about and, and just reinvention so many people had to reinvent themselves um i mean i i literally sat there for 10 months and twiddled my thumb and crocheted and made ridiculous little videos um and then i went back to australia i was don't people say how on earth did you get on a plane on the 1st of november 2020 and get home and i said how on earth did you do that yeah, well, I, had, I had four flights that were cancelled before that and then a girlfriend said to me jane you have to ring like one carrier and not be on a code share flight and so i rang singapore airlines in paris and um, and I got this lovely guy, Philippe, on the phone and um, 
he got me on a plane. But it was while I was in um, hotel quarantine and I was sitting in the bath every morning for two hours because I had a little routine and uh, and I was sitting there and I was thinking of a, a book proposal that I had sent in to Asseline, the publisher of my fourth book, and it was called um, Be Ever New, The Authentic Art of True Hospitality. And I thought I could take that book and turn it into an online course. It just came to me while I was sitting in the bath. And when I got out of the bath, I looked up my Word documents and there it was, eight chapters, eight weeks, it was all there in front of me. And um, I sat and I wrote uh, scripts for doing sort of hour-long films that would go out on a Monday and I wrote notes and tasks that would also go out on a Monday and then have a live every Saturday. And I've been doing that course since um, I got back from Australia last year, so February 2021. And then um, I wrote another online course called uh, I Want More the Next 30 Years, which came about um, because of a intense writing partner that I had in 2020. We would write to each other most days. Um, and the the title comes from something that she said to me while we were writing. Um, and then I started cooking classes as well. So I do a Northern Hemisphere cooking class every Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock and a Southern Hemisphere cooking class every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. 8am. And so, you know, all of a sudden I've got this online career as as well as what I've, you know, always done. Well, your first book was titled My French Table. How does the French table differ from the Australian table? Oh. <laughs> well, look, in terms of our family, um, we always we always sat together the four children and Pete and I at six o'clock every night, which I know a lot of people can't do because they're not even home from work, but we were lucky enough that we could do that. So we did. And 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 it was religiously every night. Um, no one ever sat on a couch or um, on the floor in front of the television. It was at the table. So in terms of um, I guess we were we were quite French in that respect, although we sat at six o'clock every night. The French would have been eight o'clock or nine o'clock. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I I guess, you know, the French table, um, it's a longer meal, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, a Sunday lunch that might start at one and you may not leave the table till quarter to five. Um it it's it's an entree it's a main it's a cheese course it's a, it's dessert uh it's an aperitif beforehand um and when we went back to australia after we were here for 2 years full time and then we went back to australia so that the kids could be at school in their native tongue um and that was the one thing that they would not give up the aperitif each night. 
So, you know, they'd, they'd all be in the kitchen making citron presse or I had made an elderflower cordial and they'd put bubbles and ice and bits of mint in and, you know, make an, imp- an aperitive for themselves each night. Um, yeah, I, I, and I guess that um, that obsession with what what is the next meal? What are we going to have? You're sitting there at lunchtime talking about what we'll have for dinner or... Um, we have guests coming tomorrow. What will we make? Uh, what will we have when they come? Um, and, you know, I think there's uh, a lot of people in Australia that think that way as well. And particularly, and I, and particularly with, I keep going back to COVID, but it sort of was a, it was sort of a, um, a restart, wasn't it? Um, and a lot of us went back to basics and a lot of us went back to growing vegetables. A lot of us went back to home cooking from scratch. Um, people had time and they um, and they really enjoyed it again and it became, you know, a passion uh, that they didn't want to give up. A lot of people started making bread and beautiful pastries and things that they had never had time to do before. Um, so uh, is the French table really that different? I think there's so many crossovers in so many cultures now um, and there always was, of course, but um, probably more so now than ever before. For something a little different, I wanted to see if you have the same problem as me, and Ooh. that is, do you speak French with an Australian accent? Yes, I do. Because <laughs> do they understand you? <laughs> well, some of them look at me mad, as if I'm a mad woman. But Andrew, tell me one French person that you have ever met in Australia who speaks English with an Australian accent. And and I make hideous mistakes with my pronunciation and my tenses and my verb endings all the time. But um, my French friends understand me and I figure as long as they're understanding me and they're making the same mistakes in, in English as I make in French. And it's this lovely exchange of culture and language and we just accept that about one another. And a coupe of champagne will always give you a little bit of Dutch courage, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I always speak better uh, in French when, well, there is a point. So there is a point of like, you know, maybe one or two glasses of wine or, or something. Yeah, that's good. My French is really, really good. But there is a, there is a point where it just then it goes downhill. And everybody, everybody just probably thinks, oh, Andrew's um, liaison is getting so much better. <laughs> No one's ever said that, Jane. No one's ever said that. (laughs) You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. 
Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive grade content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. On to today's subject, the Agnew de Pricel. Um, before we talk about dishes made with it, I wanted to ask a few things. So first up, uh, have I said it right? Agnew, 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 don't pronounce the G. Agnew, de Pricelle. De Pricelle. Okay. So what does this mean in English? It means lamb that's pre-salted. It's, this, it's a specialty, so obviously for France. So where is it from? Okay, so um, typically I, I, I've only got one place I can buy it from around me, um, which is at Deauville. Um, there's a butcher there and he sells the annual and Andrew, I have said Agno for <laughs> 16 years. It was only last year that he picked me up and he said, Madame Webster, Agno, Agno. I said, okay, okay, Agno. Um, so it's a type of lamb which has been raised in salt marsh or pre in, in salted waters. And um, the one that is probably the most well-known is the Agneau of Mont-Saint-Michel. So the lambs graze on the waters around uh, Mont-Saint-Michel. I think it's something like 356 different herbs are in that grass. Wow. And the presale is the presale is the um, the the racing waters that come in as the tide comes in, and it it is what waters the pasture and the meadows around uh, Mont Saint Michel, and so you get this um, this incredible. Um, well, you wouldn't. I would never put any salt onto the lamb. It's so different. Um, it's so different to Australian lamb, uh, of which and New Zealand lamb, of which we get a lot of Australian and New Zealand lamb here in France as well. I looked this up actually in my research, and I found some uh, words that I've never used before, and I'm excited to use them. So they've grazed on high salinity, yes, and high iodine. Exactly. Iodine. Iodine content grasses, that's it. So how does this affect the taste compared to just, as you said, lamb that we would get from Australia and New Zealand or anywhere else? How is that taste different? Do you know what I mean if I say that lamb in Australia, I'm not, I'm not a mad, um, I'm not mad on lamb. I love lamb cut. I love racks of lamb. Mm-hmm. I love a slow roasted shoulder. Mm-hmm. But and 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 there's quite a few recipes that I love with lamb, but I'm not mad on just straight lamb, and but I love pre-sale lamb, and um, I don't know it. It's you know they say it's pre-salted. Well, it's not the salt I can taste. It's complete. It's a completely different taste. To, have you had the pre-sale lamb? No, I haven't. Oh, well, you'll have to have some. Um, if, you, if you come up exploring Normandy, Not I'll do if, a pre- when, I'll, I'll when you come up. When, when I you come. come up. 
I will do a pre-sale lamb for you. Um, no, it's it's absolutely beautiful, but it's subtle. It's um, uh, it's I guess it's a bit earthy, herbaceous. Um, herbaceous and earthy is probably how I would describe it. Um, I I I just think it's the most and and it must be the the salt and the high iodine content um very very um moist and tender the area these lamb are raised in is known as an aoc area mm-hmm. for the lamb what does this aoc stand for and what does yeah what does that mean well that uh is appalachian uh, original control and everything that um Everything that touches the lips of human beings in France, you know, is controlled. Um, I, I, I often use the example of, um, and you'd remember this, Andrew, do you remember when um, there was a champagne in Australia called mm-hmm, Great yes. Western Champagne? And um, they were, I don't know whether they were sued or they were stopped uh, by the region of Champagne in France from calling it Champagne. And that's because AOC, Appalachian Original Control, it can only be Champagne if it comes from Champagne. Yep. And it can only be a Prisale lamb or Agneau de Prisale. Um, if it comes from uh, the the little tiny region, the meadows around Mont-Saint-Michel, or there is um, up further in Normandy, there's the Bay of the Somme in Picardy uh, that also has the Agneau de Prisale. Um, and then there is a there are some parts of the UK and the Netherlands that also have sheep grazing on pastures that are covered in um, all these herbaceous and they're watered with the but you know in Australia we have the salt bush lamb yes okay yes uh, and it's a it's a similar thing except that um they're they're feeding off the the salt bushes rather than being in areas that are flooded you know Every couple of days. I've seen those iconic pictures of the lambs eating on the fields in front of um, Mont Saint-Michel. Is this this all year round or is there just a specific time that they're there grazing? We're coming into spring, so you'd see the spring lambs. And I'm not sure uh, how this works, but um, you can get pre-sale lamb all year round. Um, Well, certainly from my butcher in Deville. Uh, so whether that and each one comes with an AOC certificate, uh, numbered, um, because there is a a certain amount of um, uh, lambs each year that are available. How do they make sure that the lambs don't get washed out to sea? The farmers, <laughs> they have to watch the tides. <laughs> very, I know. Very I'd be worried about the poor little lambs. At Mont Saint Michel, they used to lo- lose you know, dozens of cars every year 
from people who were, you know, up at the top in the abbey and, and the tide came in and they didn't move their cars <laughs> in time. <laughs> okay, so it's a particular breed. It's the Greven, G-R-E-V-I-N breed, and um, it must be the Greven breed to um, have the AOC, you know, there's very strict spe- um, spe- specifications. Um and the ewes must graze at least 230 days a year in the herbs around Mont-Saint-Michel um, to be classified as uh, an ewe de prisale. And then the lambs can only be slaughtered after a minimum of 60 days of grazing on the same field. Right, okay. So um, I guess they could. I guess they could have. A loss of some, yes. On to dishes and how to cook the Agneau de Prisale. Do you cook the lamb the same as you would other lamb? Well, um, if I if I get a leg or a shoulder, I will – I've got a big uh, Le Creuset um, pot – a, um, a big oval one, and I will put um, a bed of celery and um, baby carrots and um, I might throw some garlic in there, but it's really not necessary, um, and I'll put some rosemary right on the bottom and then I put the lamb straight on the top of that bed of vegetables and then I will pour in uh, either veal or chicken stock, two cups of it, and pop the lid on and throw it in the oven for about four and a half hours, and it's absolutely fabulous. Wow, sounds delicious. Okay, that's on the list. It is amazing. Not that I'm expecting that when I come, but it's on the list. So, oh, no. You know. Oh, no, I'll make you pre-sale lamb. Other than, you know, the roasting of it, are there, like, iconic dishes that use the Agnew de Pre-Sale in it from that area that maybe people don't know unless you're from there? Well, you know, the thing the thing with the um, pre-sale lamb um is that you can't muck around with it too much, otherwise you're not going to taste that distinctive flavour and it is considered quite a delicacy. So, you know, they'll do the racks of lamb with it, for instance, um, uh, and, you know, serve a jus with it. So when I've slow-roasted a lamb or a leg, that veal stock or chicken stock, um, has then just turned into this delicious um, sauce at the bottom of the pot, which I then take all the vegetables and the meat out of and I reduce it down a little bit and, you know, season it. And um, But I don't do much to it. What about things like the offal and things like that, like the brains or sweetbreads and all, all those sorts of things? Like is does that have a different flavour to normal lamb? I don't know because I I don't really do anything with I'm not really an awful cook. 
I love I love it when I go to a restaurant. I'll eat most things. Yeah, I'm the same. Apart from you know, I'm saying that, and yet I've been at the market this morning, picking up uh, 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 chicken livers. <laughs> I was just about to say, apart from chicken livers, I can't eat. I can't. I can't cook and eat chicken livers by themselves. No, but chicken liver parfait, love. I'm making. I'm making that on Friday. I'm doing a cooking class. We're cooking for the Ukraine for Ukraine on Friday, and um, I think we've got about sixty-eight people that are going to be on a Zoom. So they all got their recipes. Oh, fabulous! A week ago, and we're all cooking together. And the first thing we're cooking is chicken liver parfait. There you go. I think we're one and the same person, Jane. Except I think you're slightly better looking than I. Oh well, I don't know about that. I did say slightly, Jane. I don't want your head to get too big. It's going to fit on the screen for your Instagram videos. Are there any traditional accomplishments to have with the Agni to pre-sell? Mm, um, like, well, you know, mint sauce is like a classic Australian accompaniment, which we probably stole off the English probably, I don't know. But do yeah. we have something else? Because it is a bit, there is that salt, salty taste, I suppose, with it. Yes. I, I mean, look, there are there are restaurants um, that do pre-sale grilled lamb chops um, and roasted racks. And I know one restaurant that does a garlic cream with it. Um, which would be lovely. Um, and then um, there's a restaurant called uh, Le Relais de Roi, the King's Relais, uh, and they do a long, slow cook um, with honey and ginger. Is there a seasonality to actually eating? Oh well, you know, you still have you still have this whole spring lamb, um, you know, when when lamb is at its absolute best here, uh, definitely. Um, uh, so, but going on, so if the lambs are, are starting to be born now, the pre-sale lambs must be grazing on those uh, that herbaceous meadow for 60 days so if we're let's say we're at the end of march april may that would give the pre-sale lamb would be would start to becoming um as spring lamb you butcher at the start of june i guess i'm sitting here in my window in my office um overlooking the hotel dieu uh, right now, and it's about to be turned into, it's going to be finished in 2025, a hotel, restaurant and spa, um, which is going to be the Jean Rubichon group is going to um, be running it as a school for people to learn um, how to work in hotels and restaurants and, and spas. It's a great thing for the town and a great thing for the area. And one of the things that they have, and I can see them right now, is uh, to to keep the lawns down, they've uh, put up fences all around the property to make sure they can't get out, and they've got lamb, the uh, sheep grazing all over the oh, property. It's cute. fantastic. It is That's so nice. So That's I'm uh, recording this podcast, looking out over them, and um, and thinking, oh, you 
look a bit delicious. And I wasn't talking about you, Jane. <laughs> I was talking about the lambs. But no, is it to, that's that's the, the the Macron said that to one of our prime minister's wives once, didn't he? Say that she was delicious. He did. He did. Can you imagine if someone in an Australian politician said that to a woman? Oh no. <laughs> Yes, but we don't have many Australian politicians that look like Macron. Uh, Boom, boom. Um, There is a point. Finally, my last question, Jane, that I ask everybody who's been on Fabulously Delicious, what's the most fabulous thing about France to you? You know, I was talking to the ladies of my book club. I'd have a book club in, in Paris every Monday morning. And uh, we were talking about this last Monday. And I love that when I go to a dinner party or a lunch or I'm just having a drink with a French friend, um, I love the conversation and the openness of the conversation and the bluntness of the conversation. I love that the political correctness isn't here. I don't agree or like a lot of things that come out of a lot of people's mouths, but I like the fact that I know that about them. They're just not politically correct. Jane, thank you for teaching us all about your French table, uh, as you have done uh, over the last uh, nearly 20-odd years in your chateau. We can't wait to all come and visit you one day. Our listeners, you just need to get onto Jane's details. I'll have them in the show notes for this episode so that you can find out where Jane is and where the chateau is and so that you can come and visit her when we're all being able to visit each other again, which is pretty much now, Lovely, lovely time. Well, I have my first guests arriving on the 1st of April. So Fabulous. That's and uh, most of them are American, but I do have an Australian couple coming in as well. Well, hopefully the more Aussies next year when we have the Rugby World Cup. More of everybody when we oh, have yes. the Rugby World Cup. Yes, yes, yes. Jane yes. Webster, thank you so much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful chatting. It was fabulous. Merci beaucoup. Je vous en prie. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.